Hello, friends. Welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Allison Coton, an interaction designer at EPEM Continuum. What does the term accountability conjure for you in the context of your business? Does it suggest vexing letter-of-the-law scorekeeping, or does it feel more expansive, an opportunity to talk freely about difficult subjects, an opening to innovate in ways that are truly focused on fixing our society's intractable problems? Today, Jennifer Howard Grenville, the Diageo Professor of Organization Studies at the Cambridge Judge Business School, and our Elena Schechter, Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer and SVP, bring some real talk to the discourse. What drives accountability around environment, social, and governance commitments? As a practitioner among thousands, I've often wondered how my own values and those of this big company align, and it turns out this is a question that workers across the corporate sphere and their leaders are grappling with. How do we get beyond lip service and surface-level metrics to really understand if the changes we're making in the name of diversity, sustainability, and other human values are making a difference? And what if we want that difference to go beyond the figurative walls of our organizations? It turns out, of course, that the answer is it's complicated. Our world is a web of interdependencies, and we human creatures and the social structures we've built are a rich tapestry of contradiction and conflicting needs. What is becoming clear is the longer we wait and the bigger the environmental and social crises that shape our lives become, the greater the demand for meaningful corporate commitments to change. Not just from individuals, but from leadership, shareholders, supply chains, and consumers. There's momentum here to change not just a few processes, but entire systems. To think about the next generation of workers and consumers, and to strategize how to hold ourselves and our companies accountable for meaningful positive impact. Let's hear Jennifer and Elena talk about how it might happen. Jennifer, thanks for joining me um, on this conversation. I'm really excited uh, to talk with you about your article that you wrote recently around uh, the topic of ESG, which has been uh, a topic that has been near and dear to my heart personally and then organizationally, a big project for, for EPAM. Um, with your permission, I thought we'd just dive right in. Um, yes. There's a couple of things that you say that I think are quite um quite provocative and, and quite interesting. And I wanted to uh, maybe double click those a little bit and explore, uh, explore a little further. So Great. one of the first things, um, kind of the opening act in the article was your statement that the whole entire notion for many organizations around the measurement of ESG um, programs comes along with really trailing this this idea of a, of, of a hubris of a sort in organizations. Um, and you go as far as to write that you don't think our children will be thanking us um, for helping asset managers to reward airlines that more effectively shift to different types of fuel uh, in order to reduce carbon emissions and really question whether the children will measure the value of the investments by the quality um, and, and tenure of their lives. And I, I really, well, A, wanted wanted to, to say thank you for saying that, and B, um, wondered if you could comment, you know, sort of what, where do you think this hubris is coming from? Yeah, um, great question. And actually, I, I make that point a little bit later in the article, because really my main focus in this piece is to put into context what a lot of companies are doing, which is producing ever more sophisticated metrics and measurements of their ESG impact. And there have been lots and lots of efforts um, around the world to improve and standardize reporting on ESG impact. Um, and of course, the investment community is extra keen to, um, to be able to trace and track and transparently show us as investors um, and us as consumers and show businesses and themselves how they're performing on ESG. So 
ESG measurement is hugely important, as I recognize in the article. But what I try to do here is sort of contextualize it and say, well, hold on a minute. Here's where we need to just be careful. Um, and this notion of hubris is a point that I thought in many ways, it's like a lot of things, anything pretty much we do with data. It's um, it's looking at where we're at. Um, in many ways, I think with ESG measurement and um, ESG programs, we're correcting for past sins. So we're trying to make things better than they were. We're often doing that in a very sort of linearly extrapolative fashion. So let's be less unsustainable than we were, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, last year. Let's reduce our carbon footprint, for example. Absolutely. Yes, we need to do it. But my point was to say, well, let's jump ahead. And, and you look at some of the other sort of mega trends out there. ESG and sustainability isn't just one. There are whole shifts in ways that people are thinking about and living their lives, not just post pandemic, but some of the other trends. Investors themselves are going to get radically younger. They're going to get more female. If you look at actually the data, the demographic trends, more wealth will shift to the hands of younger people and of women, relatively speaking, over the next couple of decades as the baby boomer um, generation sort of ages out. Simultaneously, we'll have a large old population of baby boomers that need to be taken care of. But when today's asset managers are scrutinizing um, a company's performance, let's say, on its carbon footprint, do they have a net zero commitment? How are they doing on that? You know, are they using offsets? Are they doing something else fundamental? We forget that actually, if we're investing for the long run, we need to think about what the values might be, what the needs might be of those individuals who are going to be the beneficiary of those investments, not today, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And so that's what I call sort of the hubris of ESG measurement. We just need to be careful that the measurements that we're working so hard to harmonize and systematize and develop right now actually capture what people will care about. Um, as you said, how will they value their lives in the future? And are we delivering on that value? Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, as I'm an organizational uh, theorist, I'm an organizational scholar, I'm not a finance scholar. But I think when we get these other perspectives in, we can start asking questions about ESG measurement that we might not have asked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is actually something we've discussed at length with our senior executives. Um, and I guess a little off script perhaps, but in your research, where does the ESG sort of program live in, in a corporation? Mm, in, in, a, in a business, for example, that is interested in improving their um, ESG performance. Yes. Where does it I mean, live? Well, yeah. Where does it live? Who owns yeah. it? Or is there, is there someone who does own it entirely? Where, where it does live is often there are um, groups and individuals, depending on the size of the organization, sometimes enormous groups um, that actually sort of own ESG. And historically, I mean, I've been in the business of studying sustainability since before we called it sustainability. Um, I was a doctoral student. Um, oh, you know, 25 years ago now, um, studying these issues when we called them environmental management. And um, over the years, there's been a significant move from seeing ESG or sustainability or environmental management as something that sort of happens off in the periphery. Um, there's a specialized group that does that. Um, you know, they might be taking care of tactical things like health and safety. They might be producing the report. They might be doing external communications, but they're sort of cut off from the core of the business. Um, and increasingly, we've seen more and more businesses actually recognize 
rightly, that um, sustainability is absolutely core to their strategy. You cannot execute a strategy in the 21st century in any business um, without understanding sustainability. And by that, I don't just mean carbon footprint, because for many organizations like yourselves, it's probably really quite small. It's a drop in the bucket, certainly compared to many others. But every business um, has social impact. Um, Not even, you know, you don't need to look very far outside the business, but employee well-being and those kinds of things. So I think um, companies that are recognizing that they need to orient to where the world is and particularly, as I said earlier, where the world will be um, and where it is going and how it is going in that direction, um, we'll start to, to move sustainability um, functions and sustainability performance right to the heart of their business. I think it should be part of the strategic planning process. I think it should be part of board conversations. I think it should be part of onboarding. It needs to come from the top, from the middle, from the bottom, um, formally and informally in every way. And I think it is in many organizations, things have really changed. Um, um, You know, sustainability specialists will be recruited continuously. There's huge demand for them, but the idea that you can show up and have a junior, you know, sort of marketing position in a company and express your interests around something and find an employee resource group or another way to contribute to those issues, um, totally normal now. And, And that's where a lot of these changes are coming from. Too. Yeah, we see we see the same. It's interesting. Just as a data point, we've been somewhat acquisitive over the last few years, and it tends to trend as one of the top open questions um, in companies that we buy. Sort of, what are you guys doing across a number of dimensions? Um, and yet, um, and, and yet, sort of the program still lives somewhere between investor relations and. Uh, our HR group and our finance group and our marketing group. I mean, those are my general partners and it is increasingly for us becoming part of strategy, mm-hmm. but it still feels at least to me, even with all the thinking we're doing that more nuance and a little bit more balance in terms of the core of the business is, is, is needed. And I think that's what your article kind of comes right out and, and, and says, think downstream, think long-term. You do mention a couple of examples, and I guess I'm curious, out of the companies that you've looked at, are there any that stand out, either good or bad, um, in terms of their handling of sort of this integrated uh, approach to thinking about the the impact and, and how to measure them? Many of the examples that people you know, want to have might be what is the latest, you know, impact measurement? How do we gather all these data? How do we use big data? You know, how do we distill it? What's the most sophisticated method for for sort of measuring our ESG impact? And then therefore, how can we how can we make some changes or how might investors actually measure this ESG impact and compare across companies? As I said earlier, we're doing that. We need to do that. But some of the really basic sort of non-sexy stuff around ESG is actually really crucial. So in in the article, I talk about the importance of both zooming in and zooming out. So by by zooming in, I mean, be really curious about an issue. Don't try to boil the ocean and get an A star on on every issue that's out there. Um, Be really curious about things that either stakeholders are raising or you know yourselves you could you could have an impact on. So the example I give is is of Nike. It's an old example. Um, Ages ago, when they were being attacked in the press for um, labor practices in their Indonesian supply chain, um, rather than sort of immediately react, 
they went off and they said, right, well, we'll gather some data. So they went to the factories, they deployed a whole team of researchers. Um, it was actually led by an academic who was a member of their board, Jill Kirk Conway. Um, they deployed a whole team of researchers. They did more than 60,000 interviews um, in the factories, discovered basic things like part of the reason there were difficulties in communication in these factories is because the managers and the employees did not speak the same language. And I don't mean that in some culturally flowery sort of academic speak. I mean that they did not speak the same language. They did not communicate in the same tongue. And so those discoveries, it takes a while to interview 60,000 people. Um, but the kinds of insights that you get to what's actually going on in this supply chain, which by the way, Nike did not own those factories, but it, mm -hmm. it contracted through them. The kinds of insights that you get and the ways in which these are embedded in the communities and these are embedded in people's lives and that you can enter that sort of trying to see from their perspective, at least on the ground, as, as you know, a very ethnographic approach too. um, shows you things that you could never possibly know without being there. And you don't necessarily need 60,000, 7,000 interviews to get there, but you need some sort of on the ground, what I call really zoomed in understanding of what is going on. And then from that, you can develop a, a, a sort of rich and multidimensional um, approach to actually address that. So this is what I talk about, actually understand the processes, actually understand what's going on um, in a few areas, because you can't zoom in everywhere. Um, and that that can really yield benefits. And the other point is simultaneously, and it, and it sounds maybe paradoxical, and it could be, but that's the world we live in, right? We live in a paradoxical world. We need short-term results, but we need to orient to the long-term. We are never going to break down that tension. We need to live with it. We need to move back and forth with it. We need to be okay with it. And we need to understand it's difficult. So simultaneously, organizations and businesses need to zoom out. And they need to say, right, well, what are we connected to? How is this happening? Why is this being produced? So the examples I give in the article, you know, we can get very, very good at having a very targeted metric mm -hmm. that gives us a really effective and efficient solution to the wrong problem. By zooming out, we see the holistic system that we're in a little bit more. We talk to other stakeholders. We understand that maybe actually us optimizing our carbon footprint is the wrong thing. Because if we're optimizing a carbon footprint where, you know, in our supply chain, there's nine times as many emissions, we should be leveraging, <laughs> getting more bang for our buck, orienting to the supply chain. Um, we could be turning a product into a surface. We could be doing something fundamentally different. Um, you know, don't think about how to make the more efficient, um, you know, dryer, whether it uses gas or electricity, think about how you get people away from the idea that they have to dry clothes in a dryer. Um, so I think zooming out is one of the things that um, companies really need to be able to do at the same time as zooming in on their processes. So those are things that no matter what you're measuring, um, they will give you a much better sense and understanding of where you are, what your impacts are, and what opportunities you have to make some actual changes on those. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think we, we've been struggling a little bit with the same sort of problem stack that you described, which is, you know, what, what, what sort of measures help us to kind of create this perfect blend. And actually, Pam's been playing with this idea of creating a number of value indexes, um, around sustainability is, is one of the areas we're playing with. It's really hard. Um, and I know that you you just sort of mentioned this idea of capturing inputs versus capturing outcomes. Um, I'm wondering sort of 
what's your guide for the practitioner on how to create sort of this more nuanced balance of driving calculations or using data or creating metrics that blend this idea of inputs and outcomes into the calculation? Mm, yeah, I mean, honestly, we don't really want to blend inputs and outcomes. Um, and then there's impacts. So inputs sure, are, yes. what, what, what did we do? You know, did, did we add more um, racial minorities to the board? Um, outputs are, do we have uh, richer or more diverse discussions when we're decision making with that board? Um, and impact is, does that actually change anything in the world? You know, do, do we deliver our product or service differently that benefits uh, people mm -hmm. who might not have benefited before or that meets a market need? Um, so we measure inputs because they're really easy to measure and we can control them. Um, impacts are really hard to measure. What change did you make in the world? Well, some of that change might have been happening anyway due to social movements or attention or um, other, you know, political, regulatory, economic shifts. So first off, I think we need to recognize that some things are just inherently easier to measure. And that's why we have so many input measures. We're a little bit better at sort of outcome measures. Um, but Still, we don't know the causal links, as I say, between them. So we might have a richer discussion in the boardroom because um, some members happen to read a really provocative article or because their teenagers came home from Friday for the Future and talked to them about an issue. Um, so it may or may not have anything to do with a, a, a shift that the organization has actually taken. And I think, again, recognizing that is really key. That said, how do you sort of orient towards these? Um, you know, by listening, by being open, by by having the people who are affected by and going to be affected by the issues um, have some sort of voice in what you're doing, by listening to the workers who aren't even workers for you yet. What are the, you know, um, what are they doing? Uh, we hear that young people aren't taking their driver's licenses anymore in, in many countries in particular. Um, you're not going to sell them a house with a three-car garage in 10, 15 years from now, right? Or maybe you are, but it's not going to be purposed for a vehicle. Um, and so I think I think one of the ways that um, companies need to sort of, you know, think about these sort of causal links is get away from what is now and what our, what our prior assumptions are now about how things work. Yes, you probably need to have a more diverse board. Yes, you probably need to do some of these other things, but really start asking yourselves why. Why are we doing that? Um, you know, what are the trends out there in the world? What are the trends in our organization? What capabilities do we have? What strengths do we have in, as an organization to sort of orient to those trends? So how can we use the stuff that we're measuring, not just to keep score, but to actually figure out how well positioned we are to, to, to go where we need to go. I mean, because measurement also has all sorts of other influences, right? We, we always say what we measure, we manage. Well, what gets measured is what signifies also value to those in the organization. So that's one of the huge things about even just, just doing anything about ESG. It suddenly signifies to the employees, we're not just looking at quarterly results or we're not just looking at growth or we're not just looking at what have you, um, but we're actually paying attention to these things. But then the challenge becomes delivering on those. And I think that's what you're, you rightly are sort of seeking to do. How do we deliver on those? I say, start with the few things that you can dive into really closely and try to understand 
the trends and the issues where they're going and then try to establish some causal links and test them. Um, that's that's another way you can gather data, not just to say, look, we're 10% less bad than we were last year, but to say, actually, you know, we tried this. Um, it didn't lead to better decision-making or it didn't lower our carbon footprint. It's gone the other direction. So let's revise. Um, and I think in many cases, companies need to start realizing that that revision and that experimentation, that's also part of of what yeah. ESG is about. You're, you're not going to get it perfectly. You're not going to satisfy everyone. And you're not going to learn if you're not doing that experimentation. Well, honestly, part of our challenge, and I suspect many others, has been, you know, sort of the stakeholders and their value systems. You, know, you have investors, clearly, which is sort of the obvious case. You have customers. We obviously care deeply about our employee base um, and our potential employees. And, you know, sort of it, it's been interesting to watch sort of the emergence of who the main drivers for some of the changes are in your research. I'm curious, you know, what, what are you thinking uh, in, in the longer term or maybe even in the medium, medium term, what stakeholder or stakeholders are driving the changes in the way that we think about these, these types of long-term programs? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I think, you know, in in my research, I, I, I typically, I have done a lot of work on on cultures and organizations as cultures, and I think a lot about how people within organizations can change their own organization, because ultimately an organization's culture, what it thinks about, how it does things, what it implicitly therefore values, how it orients to the market, how it um, you know, does it innovate? Does Is it conservative? All of these things ultimately are cultural. The, the, they're things that the organization has worked out itself, work for them and their people and work for how they orient to, to the market. Um, and so when you think about, you know, what are the trends or what, what are the opportunities, you know, because people themselves make up culture, I mean, yes, sort of ha- having a founder and, and leadership around it and articulating what it is, even if it's articulating what is emerging from the bottom up is really important to guide a culture. But um, but cultures often change because the people themselves change and, um, and they see new possibilities and they're savvy enough to say, you know, we're innovative, but we need to start innovating around something else. Um, and so I'm going to attach this concern I have around, you know, being more digital or being more oriented to youth or caring more about the community. I'm going to attach that to, to what we already do well, which is innovate. So people are really creative. And so I think one of the sources for change in companies that can be unleashed and harnessed if companies are willing to allow it are the employee base themselves. Um, We always look and we say, look at all these external pressures, look at the pressure from investors for ESG performance. That's massive. And that I do not want to <laughs> misrepresent that has been the thing in the last year or two years that has really shifted what companies are paying attention to. But none of us really know, in part because we don't have the transparency and the measurements and the standardization, and we may never, none of us really know what's going on inside any given company around that, right? So investors are driving things, um, sort of social movements, um, communities, um, advocates, activists, whatever we want to call them, absolutely driving things. But again, um, what's going to stick? What what will that really do? In some cases, sadly, it just sort of creates a reaction. 
Um, it doesn't lead an organization into this soul searching, zooming in, let's deeply understand the problem. It leads to a sort of let's do what they did, put something up on social media, you know, join this group, make this commitment. And so really fundamentally rewiring how the organization orients this, these things, I think has to come from a bit of both. And it's those external pressures pulling you out of your comfort zone, but it's the internal employees who represent these interests and concerns who can actually make the connections and say, okay, this fits with our culture. This fits with our strategy. This is how we do things. And here's how we can actually not just meet the needs and react to them, but actually leapfrog ahead potentially, or at least be proactive and reorient around that. So I get very excited when, when the organizations I talk to say, you know, we're really listening to uh, people who are new in the organization, young people in the organization. There's some really interesting companies that I've heard from lately that are literally putting inviting people to be internal activists. They're giving them access to their senior leadership teams. They're allowing them to make mistakes and they're learning from that. So they don't expect, you know, these new voices coming in to have all the answers, but they're opening up and they're saying, come to us, tell us what you care about, tell us what you want to do differently. And we'll work with you on that. And that I think is super exciting because you need a balance of sort of the folks who've been there for a while and, and sort of see and know how it really works and have tried some radical change before and know what the barriers are. But you also need the energy of the people from the bottom up. So I think it's those kinds of organizations that are really open um, to learning from their own diverse audiences. Um, and hopefully those diverse audiences represent the communities um, and the and the, the market that they serve. Um, those are the ones who are going to get it. Yeah, well, we couldn't agree more. Um, and I think this is why I'm so careful in, in, in kind of celebrating any successes because, you know, our approach is, I think, if I read your article correctly, kind of in line with this idea that it's a system that we're designing as opposed to just a program set out to meet one or two specific goals. I think our thinking is that our goals will change over time, but the system is really what what will will enable us to have a long-term uh, impact. And I'm curious, yeah. uh, again, based on your research, um, you know, obviously to put a system in place is, is much more expensive in every way, in time and money and resources and attention. Um, you know, what do you think sort of the outlook is for, for large organizations, corporations in particular, to kind of view these initiatives as systems initiatives? So um, first off, I just want to amplify, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I really resonate with what you're saying. It's, it's designing a system um, rather than having specific goals or programs. And, you know, we think of any, I, I just think people need to recognize that sustainability is something that is here to stay. It's it's how you do it is like how you do anything else in an organization. Um, you know, um, so, so how do you innovate? You know, you don't innovate by saying we have a program and a goal to innovate in this way on this product by this time frame, or you know, to be to be less bad at innovating than we were last year, right? By ten percent or what have you, um, or to innovate effectively by twenty fifty. So, I mean, I, I sort of jest, but the point is, um, in organizations that are effective at innovating time and time again have a system by which I think I, I would articulate it this way, and I think you would probably. Uh, from, from what I'm hearing you say, agree, is, is that it's, it's not just a set of procedures and structures and roles that we have around how we do these things. It's also a mindset. It's 
getting the right people, it's getting the right culture, it's enabling a kind of activity um, that can sort of unleash some of this sort of bottom up and top down kind of tensions and opportunities that I was just describing. Um, and, and you don't build that overnight. So any of the highly successful organizations out there that we could say, you know, they're fantastic at innovating, and they, they do it, you know, time and again on different products or through different programs, um, they didn't become that way overnight. So I think people expecting to sort of get their ESG program off the ground, you know, from one year to the next um, is unrealistic. So I see, I, I always advise organizations, you know, walk before you run. Um, but I think putting in the upfront work to think of it as we are designing a system for doing this, um, it will have to adapt. We, we know some of the big issues out there, but, you know, guess what? you know, water is going to be a really big one on the horizon. It's not even on the horizon. Um, you know, climate change, we care about deeply, but nature, biodiversity, water, all of that is tied in. Um, and that's just on the environmental side. And so it's going to be a moving target. So I think um, rather than be daunted by the amount of resources and time it takes, I think starting small, recognizing that you're building something, experimenting, getting involved in some projects. Um, success breeds success, as we all know, right? People want to jump in and contribute when they see something working. If it doesn't work, that's fine. Failure is okay. You learn from it, right? So as long as the failure has been something that you can say, right, that particular allocation of roles or that particular allocation of resources wasn't enough or didn't get us where we need to get, let's look at the system we've designed and tweak it and, and see if we can make it more fit for purpose. Um, more organizations spending more time on that rather than um, reporting, measuring, creating glossy reports will move the needle far more, I'm convinced, on ESG than anything else. Um, so I would just encourage, just get started. It's like anything else in an organization. You build it as you go. It doesn't have to be perfect. But if you're willing to look back at what worked and what didn't and keep iterating, you will build a system that is robust. And that's actually what we need. Yeah, yeah, we couldn't agree more. However, um, not not really however, but at the same time, um, you know, we are seeing as a public company quite a bit more interest and I would argue pressure to create a picture with data that allows our company to be compared to similar companies in our sector or other sectors. And mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious your thoughts on sort of this idea of, you know, as we look outside of the company and we look at, at more of a standards view, I don't want to use that word because I'm not sure that's even possible, but I'm curious, sort of what is your view on sort of open data when it comes to various metrics around ESG and do, will we ever get there? And if we do, what will that look like? Just, mm. You said open it. data. So, so, so sort of radical transparency. I mean, I think I heard sort of two questions in there too, which is, you know, should we even bother with measuring stuff and telling the world about it? Cause we just want to get on and, and well, do things. We're, we're not confused on that topic. We have to, it's a requirement. We have to, exactly. Everyone has to. And I think that's yeah. the point is it, again, it, it's, it's not attention. It's, it's both. And it's, um, you know, do the reporting because frankly, that helps you feed in. I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, I've said, I study organizational culture a great deal, but I, I started my academic life as an undergraduate in engineering and I, and I still teach engineers about sustainable business. And I am a huge advocate of doing the math, doing the numbers, doing the life cycle assessment, because, um, you know, and, and, and adopting whatever standards are out there that suit you, um, 
that you can use to measure your performance and communicate. Recognize that they're imperfect. Recognize that they're partial. Recognize that you need to understand what's going on underneath them, but you have to produce them. And when you do produce them, um, you also should use those as insight into, right, okay, you know, well, that's interesting. Our impact in this area is larger than we thought, or our impact in another area is smaller than we thought. But also recognize the big opportunities aren't about mapping what you have now, where you're strong, where you're weaker. It's about saying, you know, as as you've said, how can we actually um, get there? And so I think this notion of data transparency is one thing. I, I do not know. I can't predict. I think because of the things that we can measure now, because of the way that we can deal with very, very sophisticated data, we are going to drown in data. But this as every other area, if we're smart about it, we're going to have the ability to sense, for example, ecosystem health, um, to measure stuff we already can that we never could measure. So if we can use those data and have them shared in a way that help us tune into, because again, the ecological system is a system. So any one company's impact on it is impossible really to trace. We need to be orienting to the health of systems and then trying, if we can, to connect back to what a given uh, company's contribution was to it. But this is one of the, so, so, so there's two things. One is, is yes, to the extent that we can get data that can actually represent the health of systems, that would be fantastic to the extent that we can actually have the level of transparency um, around ESG performance. And that's where some of the work going on is very exciting and very important. You know, that level of transparency that we do, for example, in financial reporting and that level of, you know, we can trust the numbers and we know they're systematic and we know they're measuring more or less the same thing. We will get there. We need to get there. And that's an essential part of the picture. But I think the other thing that, that I've been thinking about is, you know, one of the things that we're really stuck with right now in the current mindset is each company has its report, each company has its metrics, its score sheet, as you were. But actually, what we're trying to score is the health of systems to which we all contribute. And so we can't trace a direct line between those two. So when a company develops a product or service that that enables others, that enables you and I, or that enables an entire other um, sector or supply chain to be radically more efficient in its carbon footprint. Who gets the credit, right? Okay, well, if, if we can do scope three carbon emissions really well, maybe that company that's inventing that technology or that technique would get the credit. But right now, we're actually not very good at ascribing sort of credit and, and loss. I say in my article, if, if, if an oil and gas company sells off their petrochemicals business, they get the credit. Their ESG performance has, has sort of improved, but actually system-wide, petrochemicals are still being produced. It's it's just housed under a different name. So we have a fundamental problem that no matter how transparent with the data are, as long as we're connecting those data in a sort of artificial fashion to individual companies and rewarding them or punishing them on that basis, we're getting the mapping all wrong. Um, so I don't have the answers. I'm just pointing out some of the challenges. No, that, that's, we're- that's exactly the challenge. I mean, and on the ground, and I'm, I'm just smiling because I started my career as an economist and a statistician. I ended up in an engineering company. So it's just funny. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, th- that's exactly the challenge. You, you, the data is point, it's, it's, a, it's a snapshot view of a, of a time series and it's 
incremental in nature for us. And it is unilaterally reported. In other words, it's our data. We report it and we tell people what we think it means. And yet the impact is difficult because there's so many moving parts. And I just can't help but wonder if eventually there'll be some sort of clearinghouse function for all these data to make sense to help us understand the impact on the systems. Um, that I was hoping you would say, yes, the future is bright. <laughs> we'll have an open data standard for ESG. People will stop pretending like they can make everything better with, you know, carbon credits or whatever it is that's the currency of the day. And uh, Well, I'm convinced, and I've talked to a lot of people who are far more convinced than I am and, and actually closer to the sort of finance end of things. I mean, and they say, you know, in three to five years, we will have these harmonized standards to which people will be reporting. And we've already seen sort of massive changes. And, you know, and there are a handful of sort of reporting standards and guidances out there that are increasingly being required of, of companies by their investors, for example, or, or adopted. So we will see, you know, I mean, there, there's a, a nice study that came out a couple of years ago now, I think, that basically said, you know, if you look at the you know, credit credit rating agency, so financial credit, um, the sort of um, the, the correlation between the major financial credit rating agencies is virtually 100%. But it didn't start out that way when when we first started having credit rating, you know, back in the early 1900s. Right. Um, and now we have ESG ratings. And if you take sort of the top five dominant ESG ratings um, uh, schemes, they correlate, according to this research, which was a couple of years old, to about 50 to 60 percent. So basically, why? Well, because we're measuring different things. You know, some rating schemes care more about you know, do they have defense contracts versus others? Um, some rating schemes weight differently. So they might be measuring the same social metrics, but they weight differently among them. Um, and then there's just the underlying data quality issue. So, um, but we're moving. We are not going to stay at 50 to 60% correlation between these ESG rating systems forever. Um, that's a process that is being very, very rapidly sort of moved forward on. So I think that is going to come. Um, I think the bigger question is, is what does all of this mean um, you know, how do we get around the fundamental problem of we're attributing it to individual companies to punish and reward them? But really, you know, when it comes to biodiversity impact, when it comes to impact on the ocean, when it comes to, you know, sort of um, human rights in supply chains, these are really complex because lots and lots of companies have a small part of the action. They have a part of the action, but we can't really trace it directly. Um, and so those are the areas where, I don't think we're going to, I, I think what we need there is, yes, we need data, we need transparency, but we need measures, again, of system health that are regional, that are local, that are community-based, because I can tell you we have water scarcity on the planet, and it depends where you live entirely, right? And I can tell you that it's a problem or not a problem or how much of a problem it is. It's going to depend very much on where you live. So, so the indicators are going to look quite different, I think. And the mapping between them and, and what we do between them is, 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 I don't, it's, it's going to be interesting. I think the other thing that, that when I think about these things is, um, you know, data, yes, useful, more data, yes, useful for certain things. Um, harmonized data, transparency, yes, useful when we know what we're talking about and how we're using it and what the assumptions are and limitations. But, you know, stories matter, people's lives matter, data tends to look at, um, 
you know, a collection, but it doesn't look at the specific instances. It doesn't tell you much about, like you said, the underlying processes, what produced that particular trend in that area. Um, And we can learn so much from diving into the detail. And so I think, um, I think while we recognize, and I think we're in violent agreement that, that, that more sophisticated data and transparency is absolutely key, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that we can learn a huge amount from individual instances and we need to learn a huge amount from individual instances and really be curious about those and amplify what we're learning from that so that we can sort of connect the, you know, the, the regional, the specific, the idiosyncratic, because all of these problems are global, but they're actually really manifested locally and, and, and some of them will have a common solution and some of them won't. Yeah, I think I think that's that's probably a good place uh, to end. I know we're a bit over time and you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much for all of your incredible insights and for joining me and um, having a talk about ESG and how difficult the impacts are to measure and our optimism that it's not impossible, in fact, very doable. Um, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Elena. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And um, it's been a really stimulating conversation from my end as well. Thank you. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Jennifer Howard Granville, it was a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Elena Schechter was our interviewer. Our producer, Ken Gordon, always has time for a phone call. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Allison Coden. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.